0: This is The Sweeper, the proper pan-European football podcast where we cover absolutely all of the lovable leagues from across the continent. The Sweeper is hosted by Tom Midler and Lee Wingate and it's brought to you by Mob.
1: On this episode of The Sweeper, we're looking at Denmark and Greece in a bid to decide once and for all which country caused the biggest Euro upset in history, and we're heading on a virtual journey to Bulgaria to look at Ludogorets' remarkable journey from total obscurity to 10 titles in a row.
0: Hello, hello, and welcome back, dear listeners, wherever you are around the world This is episode two of The Sweeper, presented by FopMob. This is the monthly podcast that looks beyond the top five leagues and instead casts its net far and wide to bring you the best, most obscure, and in some cases, downright hilarious stories from across the other 50 UEFA countries. I'm your presenter, Tom Midler, and I'm joined by my regular co-host, Lee Wingate, for another deep dive into Europe's many lovable leagues today. Lee, it only seems like five minutes ago that we sat down to record episode one, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. First and foremost, we want to say thanks to all the people that have tuned in from all over the world to episode one. It was really great to hear all the positive reactions and feedback and equally great to see that we had listeners from fifty-seven different
0: countries around the world yes. tuning in. very, very cool. I saw Twitter uh, looking for our listener in Saint Lucia. Whoever you are, a big hello to our listener in Saint Lucia, because uh, that's just wonderful, isn't it? To think that there are, there are people enjoying this episode, even if it may be just one or two in some countries, but wonderful to think how far around the world that that's got. Uh, d- did we manage to get one from every single one of the uh, fifty-five UEFA countries that we cover on the Sweeper?
1: No, not quite. We're still missing some listeners from a few of the micro states no one no no one from san marino or andorra yet for example but we have had listeners from uh, all over the place peru ghana malaysia costa rica gambia st lucia as you mentioned vietnam egypt and several other countries that we we didn't expect so if you are listening from one of those countries or from anywhere else really uh, we really appreciate that so hi to you from austria where you, Tom, have been rather busy in the last few days, I think, with oh, Euro preparations. I have
0: been very, very busy. Uh, before, I, before I tell you what I've done being busy, though, I just want to say, if you're listening to The Sweeper, please, can you share it with somebody in San Marino or <laughs> one of the other micro states <laughs> where, where we haven't got a listener yet? Do we have a listener in the Vatican? that would be fun.
1: Uh, mm, no, probably not. I'm
0: not even sure if that's covered by the stats, is it? But You know, the joy of stats, seeing all these flags pop up. But yeah, I've been really, really busy. I'm not sure if I'm... Uh, supposed to reveal too much about what i've been doing actually but I'll, I'll allow you to guess for yourself which euros squad that i've been spending time with um i'm going to be working yeah behind the scenes with with one of the euro squads for uh, euro 2020 um, it's been pretty hectic getting things ready so the football season has just come to a close and uh yes it still feels like it's extremely busy but i love it i absolutely love tournament time it's uh, so good to have an international tournament back I did miss it last summer. I think I've got like an internal body clock for every two years there needs to be a big international football tournament to cover. So yeah, looking forward to that.
1: That body clock is going to be very skewed when the Qatar 2022 World Cup rolls around in just 18 months, isn't it?
0: That's true. I didn't think about that. I should say I absolutely love watching the women's international tournaments as well. And uh, I was commentating on the women's DFB Cup final this last weekend As uh, at the time of recording as well. So that was a, a real pleasure to be doing that Wolfsburg again they're seventh in a row incredible Limey. incredible cup run Eintracht Frankfurt took them all the way to to the depths of extra time but they couldn't stop it so uh, yeah that was fun what have you been up to in in the last month since we got together to record
1: Lots of work for the, the end of the German Bundesliga season. And more recently today, Tom, what have I been up to? Well, I've I've had a bit of a mare. I've eaten some some gone-off lasagna. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah. You told me about this. You are feeling a bit patchy. What, yeah. What's, that? what's the story here?
1: Well, I just bought some lasagna on Saturday. Got it out the fridge thinking, oh, I'll have a nice big lunch before we sit down to record. Didn't quite taste right, so didn't finish it. Looked at the packet, 18th of May. So uh, the supermarket have properly... Uh, done a job on me there so
0: (laughs) (laughs) did you march back down there to to demand a refund
1: yeah an absolute defiance i wasn't very happy but yeah we'll see how this episode goes is what i'm saying well
0: i guess if lee has to run off the microphone at any time during this episode of the sweeper uh you have been warned you know what it is well on that glorious note uh with lee and his lasagna we'll take a quick break but we'll be back very very shortly on the sweeper with our alternative continental roundup It is time then for our alternative continental roundup, as we promised you just before that little jingle, the part of the show, this is where we discuss our most interesting and eye-catching football stories from all across Europe. So Lee, uh, what's captured your attention the most over the past month?
1: Well, this is the perfect time to pick through some highlights because at this point... All of the title races have really come to a conclusion. Um, there have been some great ones as well. In Turkey, the title won by just one goal, Bajiktas uh, getting their noses just in front. I know you really enjoyed the the Azerbaijani one, didn't you?
0: Oh, massively. Yeah, massively. Should I talk about that now? Absolutely. Well, I don't want to interrupt you too much. But, no, no. Oh, the Azerbaijan one, this is perfect for the sweeper because not only was it a, a dramatic final day in Azerbaijan, but also it was available on YouTube. So, you know, we couldn't ask for any more than that. It was available around the world on YouTube. You can just click and watch it wherever you were. So I'm a big, big fan of that when uh, broadcasters make the rights available to these uh, lovable leagues for anyone to enjoy. So I took full advantage and I watched the final day of the season where Karabag went into the last game one point ahead of Neftchi, And uh, the drama, it really came because Nefci scored in the 89th minute to clinch the title, they broke the seven year streak of Karabagh in the league there. And uh, it, it was so finely poised that actually both teams going into the game had eight titles each and six cups each in Azerbaijan. So not only did Neftchi nick it at the, at the end, but they've also nicked it to become the outright most successful club in the country, too. But it gets even more delicious because Ahmed Ahmedov, the Bulgarian who scored the goal at the last minute, he was on loan or is on loan, and that was his first goal for Neftchi. Since his loan spell. So uh, what a way to to mark your first goal in in that, you know, in those circumstances. It was brilliant. It's everything you want on a final day.
1: They really do not get much more uh, important, do they, goals than that. Um, I think I've got a title race, which in, in some ways can compare with that one. Maybe not quite in terms of the drama, but it did still see the first and second place teams in the league going head to head on the final day. And that's in Slovenia. Where uh, Mura, who have never been champions before, went into the final day three points behind, well, I suppose the traditional giants of, of Maribor. Uh, the Slovenian league is decided by head to head, so it meant that a win for Mura would get them their first title ever, and they did exactly that. They won 3 1. But the backstory is what I find really interesting because Mura were refounded after some financial turbulence in 2012, they'd been promoted in 2014. 17 and 18 they won the cup last year and now this year they are one of just two first-time national champions across all 55 UEFA
0: countries along with Bodo Glimt of, of Norway, so <laughs> I was just racking my brains massively there. I was like, who who's the other first time champion? I know Lee's gonna ask me, who's the other first time champion? Bodo Glimp, but they won it a while back, didn't they? Because the league is in a different season, is that right?
1: Yes, but it was their most recently completed season, so I thought I'd I'd give them that. Um just to stick with Slovenia because just before we move on, I, I wanna get this in there. The cup final was between Olympia and Celia in Slovenia, and Olympia won it. But the trophy, which is made out of glass, now has to be replaced because it's in two parts. Because the winning goalkeeper, the Olympia goalkeeper, Nej Vidmar, dropped the glass trophy and broke it.
0: Not the goalkeeper.
2: Yeah, of all people. The goalkeeper
0: dropped it. Come on. Of all people. Oh, No. Oh, dramatic scenes then in, uh, in Slovenia. That's pretty cool. I've actually got another one for you. If we're talking, you know, now's the right time, as you said. I think when we recorded episode one, there were only a few title races that had come to an end, really. And now suddenly the club season, for the most part, is, is over except for the, the summer leagues. And I was a big fan this month of the penultimate round. It was a lot of countries where the penultimate round had really interesting fixtures. And you've got to love the fixture calendar, no less so than in Albania, where the top four... All played each other on the penultimate round. All four clubs still having a shot at the title at that point as well. So not only was it incredibly tight, but they all played each other. And in the end, uh, it was K.F. Toita who won at a toit toit final <laughs> final decision. Sorry, that's terrible, isn't it? But I'm going to go with that. They beat uh, Vlasnia. It was Toita on 66, Vlasni on 66, Partizani on 65, and Lazzi on 61. But uh, they were actually in pole position going into the last couple of rounds of the season. So a big drop off for them. But that was just incredible. It was their first title for 27 years as well. Um, and they won the cup last year, no less, too. So a real turnaround for, for Toita And uh, their top scorer, Davy Bregu, with 16 goals, 7 assists. He was signed from Skenderby. Uh, and they're worthy of note as well because they've got a fake Arsenal badge as, as their as their logo. So oh, really? Check out Skenderby. Yeah, it's like a market rip-off of an Arsenal shirt. No, nothing against Skenderby. A great club, but their badge, it's got the blue, it's got the dark blue and the red. It's got the gold and, and the sort of the, the modern like shield, the rounded off shield shape. It's all very Gunners inspired, I have to say. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah
1: to to stick with the balkans i've got some trouble at the other end of the table this time and that's with Vardar, who are actually the record champions in macedonia they have 11 titles and have won six of the last ten um, but they've gone down this season and that is, I think, a relatively rare phenomenon. You don't see it too often that a reigning champion has gone down, all sorts of turbulence going on there. Um, I think they're the first team, first reigning champion in Europe in 10 years to, to get relegated the, the next season, the last also being in Macedonia. Wow. Yeah, which is quite strange. That's
0: incredible. Do play in the national stadium where we went to the ground together to, to go and see a game, but found out we were at the wrong stadium.
1: Yeah, we ended up... We ended up going to the which which stadium
0: did we end up going to? The Boris Boris Tchaikovsky Arena, but there's, there's there's there are two Boris Tchaikovsky stadiums in Skopje. I'm pretty sure yeah. that's where Vardar play their games too. Okay, so. well
1: that's gone to waste now because they're going to be down in the in the second division. But another quirk of that relegation, which I think is quite interesting, is ten years ago this season they were relegated, but they bought out the place of the team that got promoted and won the league the next season. So they're in what? the they're in the they're in the unique position of having been relegated and then become champions and now having become champions and then been relegated i don't <laughs> don't think you can say that about too many clubs
0: wait there, I'm, I'm going to have to take you back a bit there because that sounds suspiciously like bribery they they bought out the club that got promotion you can't do that that's like I don't know Norwich would just buy out West Brom every season and then they'd constantly be in the Premier League well well <laughs> how the, you do that
1: the deepest darkest depths of the internet seem to suggest that it was some some kind of complicated merger and that they merged with a club called Miravci um, and then yeah went on to win the league the next year
0: Okay. Um, I'm just going to run through a couple of things which didn't make the cut for this section because there was so much interesting stuff over the last month. St. Johnston, we mentioned them last month, but we've got to give them another shout out because it doesn't happen every week that a club the size of St. Johnston win two trophies in one season, swept up two cups in Scotland. That's an absolutely incredible effort from St. Johnston. And I know we have a lot of Scottish listeners as well. So I hope some of you are St. Johnston fans and you've been able to enjoy what has been an absolutely incredible season. What else? You've got Ed Sheeran sponsoring Ipswich, that's just weird, that's bizarre, it doesn't need any more talk about it, it's just very weird. We haven't even mentioned the fact that the Europa League final and the Champions League finals were this month. Yeah, but...
1: They're just not important compared to the Macedonian and Albanian title races, are they?
0: Well, uh, you know what obviously excites us is more like, you know, Keisuke Honda winning the title with Nefchi in his, his seventh or eighth different country. I wanted to talk about Keisuke Honda, actually, when I was talking about Nefchi, because he's now played in Japan, Holland, Russia, Mexico, Australia, the Netherlands, Brazil, and now Azerbaijan. And guess what? After winning the title with Nefci, he is a free agent, so he could play a long-term game here on the sweeper of where will Keisiki Honda pop up next? Ooh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Who's going to sign a player who's just won the league title with Nefci? How old is he now? Uh, oh, that's a good question. 34, I think. Okay. He's ripe for a bit of time in the Belarus Premier League. <laughs> <laughs> ripe.
1: Shakhtyor Soligorsk, then,
0: the oh, next the next club. Perfect season so far for Shakhtyor Soligorsk. Yes. Absolutely brilliant. Um, can we move it to international? Uh, issues international. You know, we've got Euros coming up very, very soon. And one of the things that caught my eye this month was definitely Karim Benzema getting back in the France squad. I know it's a bit major for us here on The Sweeper, but still, there's enough sort of niche football interest here to cover this because Karim Benzema has not been in the squad for six years and then he's back in the squad. And lo and behold, you know, he lost his place in the squad because of this sex tape scandal and trying to extort teammate Mathieu Valbuena six years ago. Um, And now all of a sudden he's back in the squad playing for France again at the Euros and his extortion trial is coming up in October 2021. So that's just bizarre. But it got me thinking, like maybe some of our listeners can suggest the most surprising inclusions in their national team squads for for the Euros now or in the past, because I don't remember one as kind of unlikely and, and box office as that, you know, seeing Benzema still scoring goals at at the highest level, but we sort of thought his France career was dead and buried and, and here he comes back.
1: So he could be playing for France in June and in prison by October. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to comment on the, the the impending legal trouble or whether he he could go to jail or not because it, it seems highly unlikely that footballers of the the ilk of Karim Benzema ever get in a huge amount of trouble for anything. Really, you can pretty much get away with a lot, can't you? When you're when you're in a position as powerful as that, but um, theoretically, I suppose it could happen. Yeah.
1: Can I bring it back a little bit more to the obscure side of things? Definitely. Um, and this is a funny story. This is not a, a league update or anything like that, but a, a video I saw on a, a very good Twitter. Account Account called out of context romanian football this video just shows a player his name is Ovidio Hoban he's 38 years old a bit of a veteran he plays for the the champions CFR Cluj and the video is of him running down the road after the team bus because they have played a game and then just forgotten him so oh. it's just a, a, video, a video of uh, Ovidio Hoban running after the team bus uh, fortunately he managed to, to get a lift and, and met them at the airport but can't be nice to uh, to get forgotten by your team
0: very, very bad indeed. Um, going back to my, my word of the day, I guess, for this episode, being penultimate rounds. We had another brilliant penultimate round in Denmark where Michelin let the title slip out of their grasp and allowed uh, they opened the door for Bromby to to pop in on the penultimate day of the season they took full advantage and they won the title their first one since 2004-5 season so nice to see Bromby back up there doing well and um I suppose the only thing I wanted to mention when I when I brought up the Champions League and the Europa League a minute ago as well is that we've obviously got the Conference League starting very very soon we will definitely be covering that down the line on the sweeper because it's uh Awakened, uh, uh, awakened, is that even the right word? A lot of interest for us in this Europa Conference League. But we've had people asking about it as well. And one of the things that's caught my eye over the last few weeks is that quite a few people have been asking online about it, saying, is this like the Intertoto Cup? And it got me thinking, like, A, how cool was the Intertoto Cup? And B, my earliest, or not, not necessarily my earliest, but one of my best memories of the Intertoto Cup, I think, is that Fulham qualified on fair play, they, they got there. The, the Intertoto Cup was always the one that you could get there on fair play standings. And actually, to anyone who doesn't know, the Intertoto Cup is very different from the Europa Conference League because the Conference League is essentially like, uh, if you count the Champions League as the A competition, Europa League as the B competition, the Conference League would appropriately be the, the C competition. Whereas Intertoto Cup was more like a qualifier, actually. It was more like a uh, an odd way of having a kind of competition named uh, instead of just calling it qualifying for European football. But um, it did get me thinking, we've talked a lot about how potentially big teams are going to go into the Conference League and it, it would be a little bit boring, wouldn't it, if it was like Tottenham v Napoli in the Conference League final. It's a cool game, but that should be a Champions League group game or maybe I would wager like a, a, a Europa League final or something, you know, even, even that, I, I, as an English person, I, I often support English clubs in Europe. I was hoping that Villarreal would win this year's Europa League because not only is Unai Emery a living legend in the competition with the most wins ever, but, you know, for for Villarreal this is like a historic achievement, something that changes the the face of of their club on on the the international scale, whereas for Manchester United, a club of that size, it would be kind of a consolation prize. And that's not what it should be. So I was thinking... Why don't we have fair play allowance so so we get these fair play teams going into the Conference League and and really open up the door for some more small teams to get into the Conference League? I'd love that.
1: An interesting idea. Talking of small teams, just to stick with Villarreal, they are the smallest place ever. You may have seen on our Twitter, at SweeperPod, the smallest place ever to win a European trophy with only 50,000 inhabitants, uh, beating Mechelen, who won the, the European Cup,
0: Winners' Cup a few decades ago. So, yeah, a really small place and a really big achievement. I think on that note... We've rounded up a lot of things. Any, anything else that you want to mention before we uh, you know, cover absolutely everything that's happened in European football? I'm done. <laughs> You're done. I'm done as well. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back for one of our big stories on this episode of The Sweeper. The Sweeper is brought to you by FOTMOB, the essential app for football fans. Get live scores, tables, detailed stats, breaking news and much more for more than 350 competitions from around the world. And what's more, FOTMOB's recently introduced a whole range of new features, including live XG data for selected tournaments and leagues. So if you're a casual football fan, a stats nut or somewhere in between, FOTMOB is the perfect app for you and it's free. Download it on Android and iOS now by searching for FOTMOB, that's F-O-T-M-O-B. We are back and we're ready to go with our main story for this episode of The Sweeper Podcast. Lee, the Euros are just around the corner. We're all gearing up, getting excited. And indeed, the finals might have already got underway by the time some of you are tuning into this episode And there will be some big outsiders going into this tournament, perhaps even with a hope of European glory.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I've never really been a betting man, but I did have a little look at the odds this morning and saw who were the biggest outsiders for Euro 2020 or 21. I'm not really sure what, what we should call it these days. The biggest outsiders are North Macedonia at 500 to 1. A little bit surprising given that they beat Germany not so long ago. And then you've got the likes of Hungary, Slovakia, Finland, Scotland and Wales
0: all right at the bottom
1: of the... The odds list as well
0: some fantastic kits in there as well amongst those teams but it does seem rather unlikely that one of those countries could actually pull off a surprise and really go all the way at the euros but of course as we all know um, underdogs have prevailed at the euros before and with the tournament fast approaching this year we decided for this episode of the sweeper that we take a look back at two countries who did defy the odds and go all the way to lift the trophy over the past 30 years Most of you will know, of course, that those countries are Denmark, back at Euro 92, and more recently, Greece in Euro 2004.
1: Yes, and to tell us more about two of the most remarkable underdog stories in international football history, we spoke to two authors who wrote books about their respective successes. George Tsitsonis, the author of Achieving the Impossible, the remarkable story of Greece's Euro 2004 victory, and Sebastian Stanbury, who authored the Danish language book Dromelant about Euro 92. Sebastian, legend has it that all of Denmark's players were on holiday on the beach when the news broke that Yugoslavia had been disqualified and, and the Danes would take their place. How true is that actually? And what can you tell us about those two weeks between Denmark finding out they were taking place and the tournament actually starting?
3: It's not true. It's Unfortunately, it's not true at all. Um they thought they were going to on holidays before. Uh, everybody thought they were going on holidays. But most of the Danish squads played in the Danish Super League, uh, which uh, the last round of the Danish Super League was actually three days before uh, the opening match against against England. So that's a whole different story and a whole different story about uh, lack of preparation that they, they didn't finish the league until Uh, three days before uh, the the, the tournament started, they already had an an, an exhibition match lined up against the former Republic of of, of Soviet Union as a warm-up, as just a regular exhibition match match before the summer holiday. So they thought they were going on holiday and maybe some of the players, uh, the foreign-based players, had... Gone out to the cottages and had a few uh, uh, glasses of red wine and some sausages on the, on the, on the barbecue. But uh, most of them actually played until very few days before the tournament started.
0: So that's quite an unusual way anyway to qualify, given you know the breakup of Yugoslavia and, and a huge uh, political event securing Denmark's qualification. If we move over to Greece, George... They successfully navigated a more normal path to qualification, but it wasn't straightforward, was it? They lost to their two biggest rivals, to Ukraine. They lost to Spain. And and that was just in the opening two games. So how did they turn that around? And what were some of the biggest moments in actually propelling Greece to top spot and a place in the
2: Euros? Yeah, so Greece's qualification for Euro 2004 started off quite poorly. Um, Like you said, two defeats um, right off the bat against Spain and Ukraine and suddenly they were left chasing, chasing the group. Um, the pressure was already on uh, German manager Otto Rahagil. He was a selection that didn't really please everybody in Greek football really from the start. They thought he was kind of a you know retiree looking for a, you know one last paycheck in the sun. However, you know he had kind of methodically started to build the core of that side even though they kind of experienced those two defeats and he was a really pragmatic man. For him, the defeats—he's like you know—they were it was Spain and Ukraine. They're, they're tough sides, and we we continue, we go on, and, and that's really what they did. And it was probably in stark contrast to Greek sides of the past, where you know those types of defeats would have completely derailed a team, and you know they would have had no hope of qualification. Otto Rahagil built this core that he started to believe in, and the players started to repay their manager's faith uh, in them. So you know there was victories right after those two defeats. There was victories against Armenia and Northern Ireland, which were completely overlooked by the Greek press. However, something was starting to form, something was really starting to be built, and the players could feel that. And those two wins actually gave them quite a bit of confidence going forward. They went into a match against Spain away um, in June 2003. It was it was basically a final. Nobody expected much um, from the Greek team. However, their confidence had, had grown, and Rehagel had them starting to believe that if they did what they could on the pitch and they fought for each other, they'd have a chance to defeat any side. And what happened was a shock 1-0 victory in Spain, followed up three days later by a 1-0 victory against the Ukraine. And suddenly, in the span of four days, everything had changed. Greece now were able to to kind of chart their own path. They, they could qualify if they won their remaining matches. Spain drew in Northern Ireland. So the group just opened up in those four days. Um, and then they went on to defeat Armenia and Northern Ireland in the finale, less qualifying for Euro 2004.
0: There's a fair bit of time hopping to be done in this interview. So if we take things back towards 92 and uh, Euro 92, the group stages, it was, of course, an eight-team tournament back then. Something which seems so pure right now when you think about the Euros. Denmark were part of that 18 Euros and they were in uh, an incredible group, really, with European giants, England, you know, the hosts, Sweden and France as well. uh, One of the favourites, if not the favourite for the tournament. So... Sebastian, what do you think the the actual expectation was from the Danish perspective going into that group stage?
3: There's a famous story that uh, the day the, the, the all the players for the first time lined up uh, in the in the in the training camp before the tournament started, Rikard Müller nilsen the Danish national coach, he brought them in, made a made a square of a, a circle of all the players, and then he told them, "Let me be honest with you guys. We're going to Sweden, and we're going to try and win it all." and this is a story who uh, Brian Loudrop has has, uh, has told many times. He says that the players started, you know, laughing just a little, little bit. But then they could see the look on their coach's eyes. He wasn't joking at all. He was serious. And that's where the preparation, at least for the team, started to go over there and actually try to do something. There were some very, very mentally hard players in that squad. Uh, some, some players with the uh, right mentality. Players like obviously, uh, Peter Schmeichel, who who was the best goalkeeper in the world. And he, he thought, of course we can win in Sweden. We, I'm in gold, so why can't we win in Sweden? At least there was some confidence within the squad themselves. On some players, another player, Fleming Poulsen, said about the lack of preparation, of course we can play 90 minutes. 30 minutes against England, 30 minutes against Sweden, and 30 minutes against France. So he was joking about it. I think for the overall public in Denmark... People were just hoping that they wouldn't embarrass themselves, uh, had some confidence in some of the players, then thought, well, we're here now, let's see what happens. What about the group stages themselves then? Can you talk
1: us through some of the, the key moments in the group and, and, and how Denmark managed to qualify?
3: In the group stage, of course, I think it was a mental boost that they uh, started off with a a good game and a clean sheet against England. And actually Denmark was closest to winning because John Fax Jensen had uh, a shot on the post. So Denmark were close to winning that one and they weren't beaten 3-0. I think that brought some confidence. The match against Sweden, this 1-0 defeat was terrible. Uh, Denmark played very bad and wasn't really close to anything. And there's uh, the commentator Fleming Tuft on Danish broadcast afterwards said, Denmark are done, we're through. And then the co-commentator Nils Christian Holmström says, ah, we, we have to play the last game, he says. So he wasn't quite ready to, to, to pull the plug just yet. But I think nobody thought that Dan- Denmark could do anything after the f- defeat against Sweden because France was on an very long, unbeaten streak, around eighteen, nineteen matches in a row without losing. But the key part of that game, Denmark had a good start with a goal by Henrik Larsen, who wasn't a starter in the tournament, but came uh, through injuries and uh, an unfortunate tragedy where uh, Kim Wilford had to leave the team to uh, go home and visit his uh, sick daughter. That gave Henrik Larsen some more playing time during the tournament, and he scored the, the first goal against France. France equalized, but then the key moment was that Brian Laudrup, the biggest star uh, in the in the Danish attack, was taken out, and people were like, "Why is Rekert Müller Nielsen uh, substituting the biggest star Brian Laudrup?" But then he brought in Lars Elbstrup, who was a very very good goalscorer. The English listeners may remember him from Luton, where he scored a lot of goals in in the late eighties, I believe it believe it was, and he brought he scored the winning goal he if, if he got the, the chance in, fr- in front of goal he would score and he did so Denmark won 2-1 and people thought it was mad to take out Brian Laudrup but Brian Laudrup said I was tired it was the right decision and the the replacement scored the winning goal so that's that's where this started for Denmark.
1: To fast forward then 12 years to Greece uh, the Euros is by this point a 16 team competition And a bit like Denmark in Euro 92, Greece were with the host nation, Portugal, um, plus Spain and Russia in a group. George, you mentioned in your book that the goal for Greece going into this group stage was one win. I mean, that that one win came very quickly, didn't it? Can you tell us about that and, and the other key moments in the group stage?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And when the draw was made, you know, the one win we all thought was going to come against Russia, hopefully. See what Greece could maybe eke out um, in the first two matches against Spain and Portugal, and then fight for, um, you know, qualification to the next phase with a victory over over Russia. That was the plan. Something completely different obviously happened. You know, Greece shocked the hosts in the first game. It was a monstrous performance, a 2-1 victory against Portugal. Yogios Karagounis' goal seven minutes in really set the tone for Greece, not just for that match, but for the
4: tournament.
2: This was a side that had grown in confidence and one that was kind of ready to look any foe in the eye. There was no big talk from Rahagil before the tournament or anything akin to to what Muller-Nielsen perhaps said to, to Denmark's uh, team. But, um, you know, this was a team that he had built that was prepared to really to go toe-to-toe with anybody. And I think they showed that in the first, the first match against Portugal. They really surprised them with their pressing and their quick counterattacks, and Portugal really had no answer. The second match against Spain, Greece was more on the back foot in that game. Spain really dominated. They got an early goal. And they, they threatened on many occasions to score a second, which probably would have killed the game off. Uh, but Greece showed a lot of resiliency. You know, they held on. Um, they defended really well. And, you know, w- when the chance came in the second half, um, Angelos Caristea scored a beautiful goal, really well taken finish from a great ball by Vasilis Tchartas. And so they they, they got a point, And suddenly they're on four points after two matches and things that you know, looked really good. The momentum seemed to be their way. So, of course, what happened, they, they go into the group finale against Russia, and it's a complete nightmare. You know, 17 minutes in, they're down 2-0, and everything looks like it's unraveling. Luckily, you know, instead of going down 3 or 4-0, because they easily could have, they, they were really poor in that first half, especially. Zisis Vrizas scored a goal that ultimately decided qualification for them. You know, they were unable to, to come back to, to get anything out of the match, but the goal itself stood to kind of get them through um, based on the tiebreaker versus Spain.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely crazy when you think about it, that they they literally went through, didn't they, on on goals scored?
2: Yes, four points with Spain, goal difference of zero for both sides. And ironically enough, this team that only could defend really, um, you know, was kind of a narrative that was spun, ended up going through at the expense of Spain on goals scored. Four goals for Greece, two for Spain.
0: After that uh, incredibly tight group stage, going back to Denmark... For their part, Denmark were actually straight through to the semi-finals, given that, as we know, it's just an 18 tournament, a much smaller tournament then. And awaiting in the semi-finals for Denmark, it doesn't get much easier, does it? Because the reigning champions, Holland, a really special side at that time, and then Henrik Larsson, again heads uh, Denmark in front. So, tell us about that magical night in Gothenburg, because for many, that's a very memorable one, isn't it?
3: Yeah, to me, it's 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 the best game of the of the Danish tournament, uh, without a doubt. I'd say, and I've seen this match a couple of, of times in recent years, and it's it still holds up, in my opinion. It's still very very fast. Both teams uh, play very good, play very very fast, and Denmark is great on on the counter attack, and it's so entertaining. This match, and everybody everybody plays really well, and it's a roller coaster ride of emotions because Denmark as you mentioned, comes out in front. Uh, the Netherlands equalize. Henrik Larsen scores against 2-1. And Denmark has a horrible injury to, to the left back, Henrik Andersen, who, who breaks his knee and is out for almost a year after that. And he has been, he's been terrific in this, uh, this match and in the entire tournament. And he's out and the Danish team is getting more and more and more tired. And they're just hoping they can hold on to the very end. And they can't. And the Netherlands equalized about four minutes before, before the final whistle. And then the extra time, that's just survival for the Danish team. Uh, it seems like the half the team is injured, the, the second half of the team is tired, and they're just holding on. And they managed to hold on to, to the penalty shootout, where that, that's a showdown, to say the least. <laughs>
1: One parallel between this Denmark side and, and the Greece team 12 years later is that they were both drawn against the reigning champions in the first knockout round. Greece taking on France in the quarterfinals and then the Czech Republic in the in the semifinal. George, how did they do this? Because it was a, a hugely uphill task against some of the biggest teams in Europe at the time.
2: Yeah, it was an, undoubtedly a remarkable achievement. Um, and, you know, by this stage, Greece had done it all in terms of their thinking. They had got the victory. They had progressed to the, to the knockout phase. So anything um, extra would have been just the cherry on top. And thus, there was no pressure on them. You know, So they, they were kind of able to really play freely, especially after the scare against Russia when they looked like they might have been going out and they were able to get through. So once again, that confidence started to come back. And I think um, when you look at the France match, the man-marking system that Adara employed, and the performances of, of some of those Greek players against the likes of uh, Zidane, against the likes of Henri, Perez, you know, there they were some great players on that French side. And those individual Greek players were really up to the tasks as far as their assignments went that night. But I think something that kind of gets overlooked as well is that, you know, this was a Greek side who admittedly defended and tried to soak up pressure. But they were really able to um, play very quickly on the counterattack. And they did have some very good technical players that were able to kind of spring attacks quite quickly they were not a side that created tons of chances but they were able to create solid good opportunities and they were great at taking those opportunities so you know i think it was a mixture of just that resoluteness and defense as well as the opportunism they had you know going forward there they were players with with decent technical ability i remember talking to yorios caragunis when i was writing my book and he talked about how everybody talks about us as a great team. He's like, but what they often don't look at is that we were all really good individual players. Some of the best Greece had to offer for many generations. So, so that was key in winning a match against a team like France. And then, then really the French game, I think, when you talk to the players, that was the match that once they had defeated France, the belief was there now to look at this tournament and be like, we can win this. They faced a remarkable Czech Republic side who was probably playing some of the best football at Euro 2004. Greece did have a good deal of, of, of fortune in that match, especially in the first 25 minutes where the Czechs were running rampant. Pavel Nedved went down with an injury. That seemed to kind of change the course of the match. It was the kind of little bit of, of extra luck Greece needed to kind of go on and win. But a time, extra time came, Greece was a, were the team on top, and they finished so strongly. And, you know, there was just the kind of never-say-die attitude between these players, something that was just completely unheard of before when you're talking about the Greek national team. Always a team that was kind of traditionally had, had strong players, but never, never, ever a team. And Rahaga was able to kind of put the parts together to create that. So, um, you know, I think that level of unity kind of propelled them past teams like that.
0: As a much younger man, I put my first ever bet on and it was on Czech Republic to win Euro 2004. So I remember being a little bit disappointed in that in that very moment because I stood to win what would have been a lot of money for teenage me. But let's move on to the finals then. So if Greece made it through via extra time, you know, Denmark had made it through via this brilliant penalty shootout against Holland. Schmeichel, the hero there. But in the final... Denmark 2, Germany nil. John Jensen's pile driver, Schmeichel again with a brilliant reflex save. That's one of the iconic saves to watch back, saving from Klinsmann's header, and then Kim Villefort's strike that just crept inside the near post. Sebastian, talk us through that iconic game from the Danish perspective. W- was there a moment in that game where everybody really started to believe we're actually going to do this? We're really going to win this thing?
3: <laughs> I believe there were a few, actually, which helped the confidence. Um, you, you've mentioned some of the highlights already. The Jan Faxi-Jensen goal, obviously... Denmark were playing against the world champions. After defeating the European champions in the semifinals, suddenly they're up against the world champion. And it's an even harder match, and the Danish team is even more tired than they were in the semifinals. And uh, a lot of the players are playing with injuries. But once that Jan Jensen goal came... There was suddenly, hold on, are we actually going to do this? Because he had been trying the entire tournament to hit uh, that, to, to try to score. And he had hit one shot after another over goal, of, uh, hitting the post as he did against England. That was by, by far the closest he was before that. He he wasn't supposed to score that goal. He wasn't even supposed to hit the goal. He wasn't supposed to shoot. But suddenly he did, and there was nothing the German keeper could do about it. And Denmark were leading 1-0. One, and... This seemed like a match that Peter Smeichel had decided he wasn't going to lose. So there was uh, the famous save from Klinsmann. There were a couple of other saves as well. And there's a very famous uh, moment in Danish football history where he goes out into the box and takes it down with one hand. He later said uh, in an interview with my employer Tipsblood at my magazine, that was actually a mistake. He shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have been out there. But he went out there. He he and he he brought the cross down and he held it. And there's another famous moment where actually, for once, the ball was past Peter Schmeichel. It was another cross from the from the German right side. And the ball sailed over Smeichel and Karl-Heinz Riedley were there at the back post ready to put it in the goal. But Kent Nilsson, one of the Danish defenders, went up and made a scissor kick and got it out of danger. So there was a team effort. Everybody wanted to win that game. Uh, everybody was, besides their tiredness, besides their injuries, they were there trying to do that for the entire 90 minutes. And they succeeded thanks to an amazing team effort and a couple of players just on the best days of their life back
1: to 2004
0: Greece won, Portugal nil, Angelos Caristeas, header from a corner. Uh, What was your heart rate like watching that game? You know, what was the nation's heart rate like watching that game? And did everyone believe that Portugal were going to get back into it? Because I think from a neutrals' perspective at that point in the tournament, we'd all realised that once Greece had gone ahead, they were so hard to break down in that tournament, especially.
2: After that goal, uh, yeah, my heart rate was going crazy. We were just, you know, obviously just scenes of pandemonium, um, anywhere you were, whoever, wherever you're watching that match, whether you were in the stadium or, or in Athens or anywhere across the world, but after the goal was scored, you just had this feeling that we had done it. And that, that's a very dangerous thing to think of when you're a football fan with that much time remaining. But there was, there was just this feeling that that was it. We, we knew we were going to win this tournament now. Um, we, we were just so convinced by that team, by that point, if we could get a lead like that, that we were not going to give it up. And I think the players felt the same thing. There was this moment right before the goal, I remember, uh, Portuguese midfielder Manish, who had scored a wonder goal in that tournament, I think in the previous match. He was about to unleash a shot from from about 25 yards. And I remember Stelios Yanakopoulos kind of sneaking in and stealing the ball away from him, kind of, you know, taking the food right out of his mouth because it looked like he was about to send in another pile driver. And what happened was, he released the ball to Angelos Bacinas in midfield, who sent a, a long diagonal to Yurkas Saitaridis, the Greek right back, um, which was one of Greece's kind of best attacking options. Their backs, and that led to the corner, which led to the goal. So I think you know there was these little moments, and probably a thousand of them from the Greek standpoint, that kind of contributed to to this victory, and that was that was a key one right there. But after we had scored, you felt no fear. You felt as though we were going to do it, and I think I think the Portuguese fl- players also they appeared the same way. I mean, they probed, they pressured, but they just could not find a way to break through. And in the end, you know, that was, that goal was the difference and and Greece were champions of
3: Europe.
1: I have to ask the most difficult question of the interview at this point because George, you're looking at this through Greek eyes. Sebastian, you're looking at this through Danish eyes. But which one of these is the biggest international footballing surprise of all time? What do you think? Can we call it a tie?
3: (laughs) (laughs) In the the spirit of uh, European friendship? For me... The Danish story is one of a kind, uh, that they weren't qualified and 11 days before the tournament, they, they didn't know they were going to the tournament. And it was a team made of 13 out of 20 players came from the Danish league and they beat France, who, as I mentioned, hadn't lost in almost 20 games, the European champions from Netherlands and the world champions from Germany. So that, that run is, that's unprecedented.
2: You know, I'll agree uh, to some extent. I think the, the Danish victory, which I followed in 92, it was just eye-opening from a spectator standpoint, from a from a neutral, that a team like that could win a, a tournament like that. But what it did was it gave hope to, to kind of smaller sides everywhere, sides not really highly regarded. I didn't have any of those aspirations when Greece went to Euro 2004. If I have to say anything to maybe fight the Greek corner, but I'll say that Greece lacked any international pedigree. They had achieved nothing at the international level they had qualified for two major tournaments so this was a team that just came out of really nowhere to do what they did whereas Denmark I think had had superb players they had decent records at at international tournaments before you know not to take anything away from them but I just think the Greek shock for me is kind of one of a kind as far as you know a team that you would have never expected to come out and, and win this tournament let alone maybe even win a game however Looking back now, I see that both achievements kind of stand up on their own, I think.
0: Oh, I love that. That was really really interesting. Huge thanks then to Sebastian Stanbury who was covering Denmark's win of Euro 92 and George Tsitsanis who was looking at Greece from their 2004 victory. They've both got books out. We mentioned them before. We're gonna cover those and we're gonna plug those over on our social media channels at sweeper pod. So have a listen out for where you can get your hands on Sebastian Stanbury's book, Dromalan, about Denmark winning 92 and George Seatonis's book, Achieving the Impossible, the remarkable story of Greece's Euro 2004 victory.
1: Yes. And I can personally recommend George's because it's in English. So I have read it. A very interesting book. Really liked all the backstories about Otto Rehagel and, and, you know, how he came to to get into that position and be Greece's coach. Um, I haven't read Sebastian's because I don't speak Danish, but I'm sure it's absolutely excellent.
0: Stick with us here on The Sweeper after a very quick break. We'll be back looking at an incredible title winning streak. The Sweeper is a new project covering all the leagues across Europe, If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice so we can keep the stories coming from every corner of the continent. Welcome back to The Sweeper. Now, it would be remiss of us to solely look ahead to the upcoming European Championships on this episode because there were, of course, some more wonderful stories from across Europe this season in club football. We've already talked about a lot of those in the roundup at the beginning of this episode, but there is still one story which we didn't mention at all. And that's one that really caught your eye, isn't it, Lee?
1: So I've been keeping a very close eye on Ludogorets in Bulgaria this season because heading into the season, there were three clubs across Europe who had won nine consecutive domestic titles. Um, it became quite clear quite early on that Celtic were going to miss out to Rangers, so their run ended, as did Juve's in, in Serie A. But Ludogorets did manage to get over the line, and so they now hold the longest title-winning streak on the continent—ten years. Very impressive but they've also broken some other records too. So there was only one man for us to speak to about this, our Bulgarian correspondent, Metodi Shumanov.
4: Well, the have just won uh, their 10th straight Bulgarian League title and have set a new record for uh, most consecutive Bulgarian League trophies uh, because uh, before this season, they uh, have been holding the, that record uh, and sharing with CSK Sofia, because uh, CSK uh, used to to win nine titles in a row back in the middle of the 20th century, and uh, Lulugorev first equaled uh, this record. Uh, but right now they have uh, bettered it, and uh, they are on this uh, amazing run. And ever since they they got promoted to the Bulgarian top flight, they've always won the Bulgarian League, which is uh, an unbelievable achievement. And as far as European football is concerned, the bigger picture, well, um, they are... Now in the all time top six, I think, because uh, Skontoriga uh, from Latvia and uh, Lincoln Red Imps uh, they they won their respective leagues 14 times in a row, and uh, Lulogorets uh, have now 10 titles and have the opportunity to catch up with Dinamo Zagreb, who, uh, who won it 11 consecutive and uh, they've also got uh, Bate Borisov from Belarus and Rosenborg from Norway ahead of them. Uh, both teams uh, won it 13 times, uh, so Ludogorets have good chances of uh, entering at least the top five and this will happen if they clinch the trophy next season and they will equal Dinamo Zagreb on 11.
1: With Celtic and uh, Juventus failing as well this year to get the Scottish and Italian titles respectively, they're currently holding the European record as well for the, the ongoing run of the most consecutive league titles. So Ludogorets really making their mark in Europe at the moment. If we look back at the history books, Bulgarian football tends to be dominated by clubs from the capital. You mentioned CSKA Sofia there, Levski Sofia as well. Um like you say, though, it's, it's pretty incredible that Ludo Goretz have genuinely won the league title in, in every season since they've, they've come into the top flight. What's their backstory?
4: I have to, to admit that Ludo Goretz, they they weren't even on the, on the football mat uh, at the start of this century. But then you have this uh, really wealthy uh, businessman. Uh, his name is Kirill Domuschev, uh, who at the start of the previous decade He decided to invest a lot of money uh, in this small club from the town of Razgrad, which is uh, based and located in the northern part of Bulgaria. And uh, this whole area around the town of Razgrad is called Ludogoria, and the, the club is named after the area. The literal translation of the name of this area is the Crazy Forest so Ludogorets are basically the club from the crazy forest and uh, on a few occasions in history uh, they've lived up to to their name so Ludogorets got promoted to the top flight uh, at the start of the last uh, decade and as i've already mentioned uh, they've always managed to clinch the title ever since the first time they they got promoted uh, it was, uh, of course, uh, a huge shock to everyone. Nobody saw this coming. Uh, then uh, they started building more and more on that success. But to give you uh, the whole picture and to put things into context, Lulugorets are from this town with a population of around 30,000 people. And uh, the whole capacity of the national stadium in, in Sofia is 44 seats Uh, so basically it means that you can uh, fit the entire population of the town of Razgrad inside the national stadium and you still have around 14,000 seats uh, left empty so it's uh, it's a really small place before Ludo it was uh, never famous for its football team and uh, this uh, really wealthy guy put Ludo on the on the footballing map, not only in Bulgaria, but in Europe as a whole.
1: Talking of Europe, Ludo Goretz got their first taste of European football shortly after winning their first title. I've read your fantastic blog, which we'll be recommending to the listeners. They beat Lazio 4-3 in a memorable Europa League uh, round of 32 tie on aggregate. Then a year later, they qualified for the Champions League group stages for the first time. Can you tell us about the incredible qualifier they played against Bucharest of Romania? Because I I believe you were there that night, weren't you?
4: I was at that game and it was really crazy. So the team from the crazy forest did that mad pink and advanced to the group stages. Just quick on the Lazio game you mentioned. When Lulugorets played Lazio, they were inspired by the Eagle Olympia, the club mascot of Lazio. And because the club uh, nickname of Lulugorets is also the Eagles, they decided to get an eagle of their own, which is called Fortuna. And just like Lazio's eagle, uh, it twice uh, above the stadium before the home games. Uh, so that's uh, a nice little detail and uh, that both Ludogorets and Flatsio now have in common. And back to that Stiawa Champions League qualifier. Well, basically, Ludogorets uh, played this game in, in Bulgarian capital Sofia at the national stadium because uh, their club stadium in the town of Razgrad didn't have the license from UEFA to host a game of such magnitude. They hosted Stiaua in Sofia and uh, at that game, amazingly, there were some CSK Sofia fans who were uh, supporting Stiaua, basically, because uh, Stiaua and CSK, they have those fraternal relationships uh, during the communist regime, both in Romania and Bulgaria. Uh, Both clubs were affiliated with the army uh, and that's why uh, some CSK fans showed up and supported Stiawa, but that like didn't stop um, Ludogorets from producing a minor miracle. I have to say, because uh, they first scored in the in the very last minute of uh, normal time to to take the tie into into extra time. And then the Ludugorets' goalkeeper, Vladimir Stoyanov, uh, he got sent off. And Ludugorets uh, had no other substitutions left. So this Romanian defender, Cosmin mozi he had to stay in goal. And uh, not only did he stay in goal, but he also managed to save a few of the Stala penalties and to, <laughs> to build Upon his own legend, Mozi used to play for Dinamo Bucharest in Romania, which uh, is uh, Stiawa's greatest local rivals. <laughs> so he managed to knock Stiawa out of the Champions League and to send Ludogorets into the group stage uh, for the first time. And Mozi that night became a living legend of Ludogorets. And after the game, uh, the Lulugorets owner uh, was so happy that he promised to name the new stand of the club stadium in Razgrad after Mozi, and that's what happened indeed. Uh, so, right now, one of the club stands is called Mozi, and they've just won their 10th league title, as already mentioned. And Cosmin Mozzi is going to, uh, to retire, but uh, the stand. Uh, remains named after him so the mozi legend still lives on
1: you mentioned the owner uh, earlier demostiev is it too simplistic to say that his money is the reason why uh, ludogorets have transformed bulgarian football the way they have or is it is it more complicated than that are there other factors at play
4: The financial wealth, uh, like the muscles of of Domoschiev are the main reason, without a doubt. The budget of Lulugorets, before the the COVID crisis, used to be maybe around 15 million euro, which is uh, a hell of a lot of money for for Bulgarian football. And also their rise to prominence uh, coincided with With the decline of traditional powerhouses such as uh, CSK and Levski Sofia, the both clubs from the capital, they have been struggling quite a lot with mismanagement, with financial difficulties, transfer flops. Uh, So uh, things have gone from bad to worse for the traditional big guns in Bulgarian football. And uh, Lulugorets have taken full advantage of that. And also, I have to say that Lulugorets have been really smart when it comes to signing players, especially from abroad and especially from South America. So you can think of them as uh, the little version of uh, Shakhtar Donetsk uh, because they've been signing a lot of Brazilian players who proved uh, good uh, value for, for their money. And uh, Ludogorets also managed to sell them to bigger clubs uh, like Cafu, a Brazilian winger, who they sold to Bordeaux for more than 7 million euros, which is still a Bulgarian league record. So they've been doing really well in the transfer market as well.
1: You mentioned CSK Sofia there. They were recently in the Bulgarian Cup final against... And you'll have to excuse my pronunciation here, Ada Kajali. For our listeners that don't know, Alan Pardew, formerly of Newcastle, uh, is the technical director at CSKA Sofia. So I have two questions for you Did Pardew dance at the cup final? And how is he getting on in Bulgaria generally?
4: I really wanted to see him dance. I know what you mean. Um, But unfortunately, I I didn't uh, see him even uh, during the final. He was there in the stands during the semi final against Lulu Goretz, which CSK managed to win. And Pardio, he's the technical director of CSKA, but uh, he's a bit of an enigma in Bulgarian football. He's recently given an interview to the uh, club media of CSKA and Uh, It remains to be seen if he stays at the club uh, because he was supposed to be heavily involved in in their transfer strategy, Uh, but they've they've changed their coaches a few times this season and their current club owner, he decided mid-season that he might stop investing in the club. Uh, So there are a lot of question marks behind the future of uh, CSK and it remains to be seen whether Pardiu is the long-term solution to CSK problems.
1: The last thing I wanted to ask you about today is a little bit off topic. It's something I saw in your Twitter feed not so long ago and that's about the situation at the Bulgarian FA because Dimitar Berbatov recently announced that he'd be running for president and a day later the former FA president Borislav Mihailov who had previously resigned, then withdrew his resignation, didn't he? And he, he wants to come back. So what's the latest on that situation?
4: Well, this is just another day, part of the incredible world of Bulgarian football, because uh, you have to say, <laughs> you have to admit that this is, uh, this is totally crazy. I mean, the president who resigned the day after that, infamous England qualifier in Sofia, uh, marked by racist incidents. Uh, So uh, 18 months later, he comes back as if nothing happened. And he returns to power. That shocked everyone, including me. I mean, very few people saw it coming. And Dimitar Berbatov, he already uh, presented his project and former Premier League stars like Martin and Stylian Petrov, they are part of his team. So he's considered by many people to be the, the new face, the fresh blood that Bulgarian football needs right now. And he is willing to, to change the status quo. Let's see if he manages to, to do this in order for that to happen. Of course, first he has to win the elections. They were supposed to, to take place this summer, but maybe they will be postponed until next February. So there are a lot of things that need to be clarified before we see what direction Bulgaria football heads into.
0: That was the excellent Metodi Shumanov joining us on The Sweeper to talk about Ludogorets and Bulgarian football in a wider context as well. His blog is really well worth a read. You can find that over at www.tfmethods.com. That's tfmethods.com, really worth checking out. And on social media, he's great as well. It's at Shumanskoo, S-H-U-M-A-N-S-K-O-O. So, uh, yeah, thanks a lot to Metodi for joining us. Really nice to have him on The Sweeper. Interesting stuff from Luda Goretz. an incredible story for them and uh, Bulgarian football in general. Really nice to have some some wider context on that and a bit of a, a perspective into what's going on, including Alan Pardew, of course, the, the man famous for his touchline dance in the FA Cup final not that long ago. I don't know how many more times we can mention that on here, but, you know, he's, he's over there in Bulgaria. looks like he might not be there forever. Let's
1: see if we can find a way of working that into every Sweeper episode. Just once, at one point in the episode, we <laughs> randomly chuck in Alan Pardew did a dance once.
0: It's just our thing. Alan Pardew's yeah. dance is, is the theme of the, the Sweeper podcast. Well, maybe not, but uh, talking about Bulgarian football and talking about Ludo Goretz, you know... We've actually seen them live not that long ago. What do you think about that? You know, a club getting promoted and then just ceaselessly winning the title. You know, it's it's incredible, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's mad. And I think that the general phenomenon of promoted clubs winning titles is is kind of more one of the past, really, where money played less of a role in football. You don't see it as much these days. Um, There are a couple of notable examples, and I think they are worth mentioning. Back in the day, Nottingham Forest in England, promoted in 77, Champions of England in 78, Champions of Europe in 79 and 80. That is quite some rise, isn't it?
0: It's fun when a player is like won one league or got promoted from one league to another and then scores in the top flight, let alone a club actually doing it at that level. Yeah. It's an incredible stepping stone there.
1: A couple more that I found that are really interesting. Otto Rehhagel, we've already talked about him, obviously, as the Greece coach. but He was also the Kaiserslautern coach who got them promoted in 97 and then they won the Bundesliga in 98. So of a, a wily fox there who's caused some real upsets in his time and my favorite tom and i've been looking forward to telling <laughs> you this all episode is bran of norway so bran uh, they got relegated in 1960 promoted in 61 champions in 62 and 63 and then relegated in 64 so i was thinking blimey they're a bit of a yo-yo club and then i went on their wikipedia page and it says the 1980s the yo-yo years so I'm thinking what were the 60s? Yeah, what were the 60s? <laughs> if the 80s are the yo-yo years. So I had a look at the 80s and they were the yo-yo years <laughs> because they set a world record for most consecutive promotions and relegations involving a top flight division. So four relegations and four promotions on the bounce and it is a a world record. So they were truly the yo-yo years.
0: Wow, that's incredible. Their sort of streak of where they've been is like it's like a mountain range, you know, the the peaks and the valleys are yeah. quite incredible. It it reminds me in a way of it, was it Nantes in in France? Who I think in the in the mid nineties they they won the title and then got relegated the following year. But you know that's that's a more negative look at. It, it, it seems somehow more special the club getting promoted and then winning the title the following year. Yeah, it's so hard to keep that momentum going.
1: And in the case of Blue de to to only ever finish top in the league is is something quite crazy. And could be the case that in twenty twenty six we're sitting here and they're holding the world record, having overtaken Lincoln Redimps of Gibraltar and Skontariga of Latvia as as the, uh, the longest title winning streak. So watch this space.
0: Before we go, the sweeper is a monthly podcast. So Lee, what are you keeping your eye out for in the coming months ahead of our next recording session? I guess there's some obvious answers in here, but I'm sure you've picked out some, uh, some niche and surprising things, which we can all look ahead to, uh, in the coming weeks.
1: Yeah, well, of course, the Euros, that has to be at the forefront of everyone's mind. Of course. Uh, And all of those games will be available to follow on the FOTMOB app, of course. And FOTMOB have brought in a really new feature um, ahead of the Euros, which I think is pretty cool. It's a Euro predictor, so it kind of charts all of the groups and then kind of narrows it down to who you think is going to be in each knockout round and then all the way down to the final. So... Uh I'd love to, I think we'd love to see you guys go into the Fotmob app, predict who you think is going to win and send us a screenshot on social media.
0: Yeah, it comes up with a really nice little graph. I tried my hand at this the other day and you get this really nice, uh, very satisfying to look at, colourful round graph at the end. And on my predictor, it ended up with Belgium winning the Euros. Ooh. So uh, I'll share that one. Let's get a few of those kicked off. Let's see... Yeah, see who wins in the end, I suppose. Absolutely, and in more
1: niche uh, footballing fixtures, the summer leagues, the twelve summer leagues in Europe. Can't forget of, those. Yeah, they're of course continuing during the during the Euros, and there are some some top of the table fixtures to look forward to. Thirteenth of June, Kazakhstan, FC Astana versus Tobol Kostanai, first and second place respectively. Astana have not lost a game all season. Tobol have only lost one. So that's going to be a bit of a crunch clash. And then four days later, on the 17th of June in Latvia, it's the top two as well. RFS versus Riga FC, both on 29 points uh, at the top as it stands. So some interesting title battles still to come in June.
0: Very nice. Can I drop in a women's football recommendation here too?
1: Absolutely. Because
0: in the uh, German top flight in the Bundesliga, it's the final day of the season coming up soon. Bayern Munich, you guessed it, top of the table, uh, having a really, really good season. But even though Bayern Munich are are virtually untouchable this season, Wolfsburg are just two points behind them with one game remaining. And Bayern have to play Eintracht Frankfurt in their final game. So potentially there could be a shocking conclusion to the Frauen Bundesliga in Germany. And I'm looking forward to watching that one too. Yeah, it's worth keeping an eye on. Definitely. Well, if there's anything else going on in your nations over the next month, we would absolutely love for you to get on social media at SweeperPod and tell us all about it, share the stories of what's going on, which games are you watching, what are you looking forward to, what are you interested in? We will be uh, delighted to cover it. But for now, that brings to an end episode two of The Sweeper. So thanks very much for listening wherever you are in the world. We will be back next month on The Sweeper Podcast. See you soon. Bye. This has been The Sweeper, the monthly pan-European football podcast. It's recorded and produced in Vienna, Austria by TOB Sports Media and it's brought to you by FOTMOB. Special thanks go to the Gentlemen Creatives in Vienna for their incredible sweeper graphics. You can find their creative design agency at theGentlemenCreatives.com.